Tonight, I want us to open our Bibles. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 22. I want to work through the text just a little bit with you and show you how Jesus dealt with uh, some of the sects of his day. And the lessons that they learned are lessons that we need to learn today. And were Jesus here today, he would speak to those religious sects that we see among us probably in much the same fashion. You know, I, I just today again, by way of remember or uh, remembrance, I looked up a video. I don't know, maybe maybe some of you have seen the television commercial or the YouTube commercial, whatever it is. But uh, there, there's a, a basketball player by the name of uh, Kyrie Irving. Uh, he plays for the Cleveland Cavs and really good, you know, premier player in the NBA, and uh, just has a lot of skills. Well. He he was made up in in makeup. They had these Hollywood people, and they made him up to look like he was about seventy years old, gray hair. You know, uh, I, I don't want to do too. <laughs> so, someone who's seventy is going to say, "What are you saying now?" Uh, I, but it, maybe older than seventy. I don't know. But anyway, he was he. You didn't know who he was. He looked like a much much older person than he actually was. And uh, so they had it set up. They, they went down to a, a park, and they're playing basketball, street ball, and, and uh, his team, well, some others take the court, and one guy fakes an injury, and so they have to get a replacement. And he comes on. He's uncle so-and-so. And they invite him to come on, and, and everybody's going, oh, great, this guy, man, he's, we're going to run him off the court. And, and for a little while, he plays like he can't hardly even bend over, and if they pass him the ball low, he just lets it go out of bounds because it's too low for him to, to get it, and he's slow and taking terrible shots, and everybody's just making fun, and then he begins to play. You know, and he baits these guys and, and they reach in to think they can steal the ball from him and bam, he is by them. He does a crossover and, and nearly breaks their ankles and, uh, he's dunking on them and they just can't get, what in the world has happened? Well, they've met an NBA player. That's what's happened. Sometimes we don't realize who we're actually up against. And that is so true in Matthew chapter 22. Sometimes we forget that Jesus is God, that he took on flesh. He, he put skin on and, and lived among us and walked among us. And we forget that he's really, he's not just a man, he's God. And for those who would dare match wits with him, Wow, you know that's not going to work out so well. Can you imagine trying to confound, confuse the God of heaven? But that's what we have going on in Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they don't understand and don't acknowledge that Jesus is God. They just see a man with skin on. They see a man, Jesus, and they think they're going to take him to the woodshed. And it doesn't work out that way. And I want us to look at, at the amazing characteristics of Jesus, of God. And it's just, again, just one of those things for which we should appreciate um, who he was. 
Job a long time ago, when you get to about Job 37 and go through the end of the chapter, Job had some questions for God. And, and God finally says, Job, listen, who are you? Who do you think you are? Calling me into question. You sit there and you gird yourself up like a man and you answer my questions. And boy, God starts to fire off a list of questions that leaves Job dumbfounded. And when God finishes, Job says, forgive me. I've spoken foolishly. I I can't confound you. I can't get in an argument with you. I can't answer your questions. I forgot who I was dealing with. And, And he repented. And those people in the first century were reminded of a lesson that Job learned a long time ago. And I think that maybe we too need to be reminded of this lesson so that we don't find ourselves arguing with God. He's right. And you're not going to win an argument with God. So the best thing we can do is submit our will to his and follow uh, his teaching. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 22 and we'll look at three encounters that Jesus had with some of the sects of the, the day here. And we'll begin in uh, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Not a good idea. Really? You're going to trip up Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, that was, that was their plan. Let's, let's figure something out where we can mess him up and make him look ignorant in front of the masses. Let's discredit this man. Let's put him on the spot and make people realize, oh, he's nothing. No, no sense in following him. Well, that was their plan. And they sent to him their disciples, get this, with the Herodians. Listen, the Pharisees and the Herodians weren't buddies. You see, the Pharisees resented the domination of Rome. They, they were strict law keepers, or at least legalistic in their law keeping. They, they were um, all about the nation of Israel. And the Herodians didn't mind Roman power because they secured their position in, in uh, you know, the, that area. And so uh, they were kind of in favor. Rome's been good to us. The Pharisees... And the Herodians are working together on this. Though their agendas are completely different, they came together on this one thing. Let's embarrass Jesus. All right? So they come to him and look at what they ask. Teacher, we know that you are true. That's sarcasm. Can't you hear the setup? Oh, teacher, we know you're true. Um... And you teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you don't regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, they set them up. Oh, they, they, they come talking nicely. You're a teacher from God. You don't care what people think. You're going to tell us the truth. Hey, what about taxes? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, you see, they think they've got Jesus. I, I can imagine them laughing after they ask the question. Oh, what a setup. We are going to nail him now. And, and because if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Rome. They have no business ruling over us. Then 
they've got Jesus in trouble with Rome. If he says, yeah, we got to pay taxes to Rome, then Jesus is in trouble with uh, the Jewish people who resented having to pay taxes to Rome. And so they think, we have got Jesus on this one. We're going to make him look like a fool, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, create some enemies for him. Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus perceived their wickedness. He knew it was all set up. He knew they weren't sincere in the question they were asking. And he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Pretty strong language. Show me that tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and they said to him, and and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, well, then render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, we have heard that statement and we've made that statement. And I think sometimes we've missed the power of what he just said. If you are not, if you don't see a wow moment in that, you've missed it. Because look at what it says. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. They were done. Ooh, we just got taken. Um, I think we'll just go home now. What was it that was so marvelous about what Jesus said? What was it that just so dumbfounded them? They came to trap him and they just left him alone and left. Look at his wisdom. Jesus said, look at this coin right here. Whose whose image is on this coin? It was the image of Caesar. Well, if it's his image on the coin, then surrender it to him. You need to surrender the coin to the one that that bears his image. That's simple enough. But you see, he doesn't stop there. He's going to take it beyond their question about money and taxes He reminds them that they bear the image of God. They bear God's image in their life. And if that's, if we should surrender coins to the one to whom, whose image is on it, then what should we do to the one whose image is born upon us? We should be surrendering our life to Him. And that they were not doing. Oh, they had their rules, they had their regulations, they had their hedges around the law, they had their, read Matthew chapter 15, how they would um, make excuses for not obeying and submitting and surrendering to the will of God so that they could pursue their own agendas. They could find loopholes in not obeying God. And so Jesus puts it right back on them. Oh, they didn't see that coming. They ask a question about taxes that they think that can put Jesus on the spot and Jesus turns the table and says, listen, just like that coin bears the image of Caesar and should thus be surrendered to Caesar, you bear the image of God and thus you should surrender your life to him. But now that's what they were having trouble doing. They weren't willing to do that. Their works showed otherwise. Read Jesus' rebuke of them in Matthew 15 and also again in in Matthew 23. They were unwilling to surrender to God, but they bore his image. Jesus just pointed out their hypocrisy and they didn't have an answer for it. They just kind of walked away, 
left them alone. So that's what Jesus did among the sect of the Pharisees and the Herodians. But the story isn't over yet because now, right that very same day, look at what it says, verse 23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there was with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And likewise, the second also and a third and even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For for they had them all. For they all had her. They had to be proud of themselves. They're Sadducees. They don't believe in a resurrection. They were secularists of the day. They were more interested, really, in political uh, positioning uh, than they were in, in religious affairs. They didn't even believe in the afterlife and angelic beings and, and a resurrection from the dead. It was, let's live for here and now. And so they're making fun of Jesus. They say, hey, Jesus, we got a question for you too. The Pharisees were sent packing. Now the Sadducees come along. And they say, you know, there, there was, we know a guy. Well, he was married to this woman and, and he died and didn't have children. And, and you know, the law says that you're supposed to, uh, raise children. So a brother married her and then another brother and another brother and all seven brothers marry her and finally she dies. So in the resurrection, whose wife's she gonna be? And I can hear the snickers. <laughs> He's not going to be able to answer that. What's he going to do with that question? These folks that believe in a resurrection, fix this dilemma. Whose wife is she going to be? They think they've made, again, a fool of Jesus. But they forgot who they're dealing with. This is God in the flesh. You think you can trip him up? You think you can catch him in his words? Jesus answered and said to them, You're mistaken. And for two reasons. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Well, he calls them out. Guys, you don't know your Bibles. You you don't understand what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches uh, that in the resurrection, he says, number one, uh, that for there in, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God's not the God of the dead, but the living. You see, the Sadducees believed in the Torah, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of law. Those are the ones that they held to. They weren't so sure about the prophets. And they don't believe in a resurrection. And Jesus says, guys, listen. Your mistake is you don't understand the power of God, number one. And number two, you don't know the Bible. And he didn't appeal to one of the prophets who talked about a resurrection. He appealed to the part of the Bible that they would have gladly accepted themselves. And he quotes that passage from Exodus chapter 3, where it says that God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. 
But listen, he's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. When God said that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead. So what are we to make of that? Um, how, How do we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being dead and God being their God? And he says, God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Well, by implication, Jesus is saying, God's uh, people are alive after they're dead. God's not the God of the dead. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they've long since died, but they must be still alive. Because God isn't, or he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus proving that they're still alive. God's not the God of the dead. He's God of the living. And so Jesus takes this question that was no doubt intended to belittle him. And again, he turns the table. Uh, This sect of the Pharisees, they were sent packing. This sect of the Sadducees, who has this quirky peculiarity about their doctrine, Jesus says, you don't know your Bibles very well, and I'm about to show you you don't. And he does. And again, when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. I'm sure they saw the setup. I used to read a lot of debate books, and I would read a side of the argument, or listen to the, the side of the argument, and I'd go, ooh, I, I don't know what I'd do with that. And, you know, and that's how I would learn. I would try to like find an answer before I even knew what that answer was. And sometimes they would sound convincing. I didn't know how to answer things. And then I would read the rebuttal, and I would go, oh, yes, yeah, that, that's it. And I'm sure the people that stood around when the Sadducees came up and asked this question, I'm sure they were going, ooh, what's he going to say to that? That's a good question. Seven men, one woman, who's going to be? And Jesus answers their question and defeats their doctrine. And I'm sure the people were like, wow, he just blew them out of the water. They they thought they were going to put him on the spot, and he just showed them by their own scriptures that they were wrong. They They were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They're not done. You'd think they learned their lesson. Um, they got put in their place. Then the Sadducees come along and try to put Jesus in shame, and they got put in their place. And when the Pharisees heard that he just did it to the Sadducees too, they come back for one more shot at him. The Pharisees had one of them, a lawyer, ask him a question testing him. And the question was, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? There's 613 commandments in the law. 248 of them are positive, 365 of them are negative. And they would argue about which commandment was the greatest. Was it one of the negative ones? Was it one of the positive ones? And which one was it? And even furthermore, they tried to um, categorize, you know, these are weightier commands and these are lesser commands. And they had their ideas. And so they come asking this question, okay, let's put them on the spot. Let's see how much you know. 
of those 613 laws, which one is the best, the greatest, has the most weight? And Jesus said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength or your mind. That's the first and great commandment. But the second one's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What do you say to that? He's nailed it. He took two commandments that summarize it all. And, well, if you love God and you love your neighbor, does that not encompass everything else? If you love God, are you going to do what he says? Well, yes, of course. If you love God, are you going to worship acceptably? Yes. If you love God, are you you going to fulfill your obligations? Yes. If you love God, you see, if you love God, you're going to do all those things as you should. What if you love your neighbor? Are you going to treat them right? Well, yes. Are you going to behave? Are you going to have interactions with people that are respectful and, and have integrity? Are you going to deal honestly with each other? Yes. That's What remains undone if you get those two commandments right? Nothing. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, and that covers, if you'll do those two things, you'll cover all 613 of those laws in those two. There's no comeback to that. In fact, the parallel accounts say that he said, well, you know what, you, you, you answered wisely. You, you answered well, or the lawyer said that. And so on three occasions, we had the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and then the Pharisees once again come to him and and try to put him to the test. They thought they could make folly a joke of him. They thought they could ruin his reputation, destroy the influence that he had on other people's lives. But boy, they were just, they, they forgot who they were dealing with. He wasn't just Jesus the son of Mary and Joseph. He was the son of God. God in the flesh. And uh, they didn't realize that. Maybe they did after they had these encounters with him or similar encounters. But let me conclude by just simply saying this tonight. Just as Jesus quieted the sex of his century, um, he'll do the same to those today. He has an answer to those who refuse to surrender their will to his, just like the Pharisees. When you argue with what his word says, when when you reason or try to get loopholes to fail to surrender to the one that you bear his image, he has something to say to you today. And that is just as much applicable to those who argue with his word today as it was to those Pharisees in the first century. He has an answer today to those who are more concerned about politics and truth, like the Sadducees. Um, they weren't so much religiously minded people as, as much as they were politically minded people and all the politics of religion, so to speak.
Jesus still has an answer to those type folks yet even today. And then he also had an answer to those who reject and and who would argue with his revelation. Um, Love God, love your neighbor, and if you'll do that, you'll fulfill the law. Don't forget who God is. I mean, read your Bibles, get to know Jesus, and when you get to know him, how can you walk away not being changed? How can you walk away and, and not love him? You know, the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, ah, they'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's true. Get to know Jesus. He's not just a man. He is God in the flesh. You can't confound him. You can't argue with him and win. The only thing you can do is humble yourself before him, learn to love him, and he'll bless you for it. If you're here this evening and not yet a child of God and you want to surrender your life to him because you bear the image of him, you belong to him in the first place. Why don't you do that by obeying Christ in baptism? And if you're a child of God already but unfaithful, and you, it's time to come home. We'll pray with you to the end that you'll be stronger and more faithful if you'll come as we stand together and sing.